Thanks for downloading this week's Talk Politics podcast. This week I'm joined by CEO for Best for Britain, Naomi Smith, and The Telegraph's Sherelle Jacobs. Uh, we speak uh, to Kevin Hurley on the terrorism and the actions the government has taken in order to uh, prevent terrorism and extremism on our streets. We are joined by Stuart Roberts uh, from the National Farmers Union. And we also talk about Downing Street vetting which journalists can attend their briefings. Terror suspects are not going to be freed unless they've done two thirds of their sentence and then put in front of a parole board. Is that going to solve, uh, perhaps not the entire problem, but is that going to make a big difference? Well, look, this issue is is massive in terms of what causes it, how you deal with it, how you respond to it, and what you deal with the offenders if you catch them. I would say this is probably a 5 or 10% uh, solution to certain elements of it. With the cutback of 22,000 police officers uh, off the streets of the UK, most of these people have been cut from neighbourhood policing and foot patrol. These are the people who develop relationships mm-hmm. with local harder-reach communities, and I'll cut to the chase. I mean, people of, uh, of Pakistani, Bangladeshi heritage, from whom most of uh, these attackers come. Um, if you don't have the relationship with a local cop that people get to know, the mums and dads won't come to them and say, I think I've got a problem at PC so-and-so, because they're definitely not going to ring up the special branch or county terrorist squad because they don't want something terrible in their minds happen to the kid. So the cutbacks in that number was a huge mistake. The withdrawal of another 20-odd thousand civilian staff from police has also meant that officers are further removed from the street to do functions uh, that needed doing. This so is the backroom staff. The backroom staff, because... Yeah. You know, case preparation needs to go on. Yeah. People need to get statements, etc., etc. And if they're not available, then where do the men come from? Off the street. In fact, the police numbers, because of the demands on them in relation to stuff of historic paedophile activities, child grooming, all of this stuff, they, they in fact have got a greater demand on them than ever before. So even if we went back to the numbers, this is not enough. The next point... Is we need to bite the bullet and accept the fact we've been very lucky with every one of these attackers that they've in fact been very stupid when they've attacked because they've always attacked very close to the bases of the armed response unit specialist groups, if you like. If you look at the attack just before Christmas on London Bridge, you couldn't have done it in a worse place because the City of London police, which are very small but have a large number of patrolling armed police, were there within a very short time and shot him dead. If you look at the attacks at at, um, the borough, the other side of London Bridge, once, which was the Metropolitan Police area, once a time, once again, the City of London Bridge, City of London Police, crossed the bridge within a few moments and shot them dead. If they'd have tried it in Croydon or Maidstone or Broadstairs, it'd have been a very different story. Mm-hmm. And this latest case, we were very lucky again. In Streatham. Because was a suspect. There were armed surveillance officers right behind him, uh, following him. There's some learning from that, and it is that the police are very, very scared to use its force. So if you look at the video of that, despite the fact that this guy was obviously wearing what looks like a suicide vest, the armed surveillance officers would not finish him off. And they should have done. They should have finished him off there and then and put a few more rounds into him. So what am I saying from this? If we want to be safe around the country from these lone attackers, we need to accept all response police officers should carry handguns like they do in New Zealand, 
like they do in Canada, in fact, like they do everywhere in the world, apart from Iceland and Norway and parts of Southern Ireland, to protect us. So Mm -hmm. we are nowhere near where we need to be. Yes, I think those that we know are a threat, uh, and we cannot be certain that they're radicalised, not de-radicalised, whatever that means, because I'm not sure that could ever happen. Keep them in prison as long as you can while they're a threat. Keep them separate from each other and so on to stop it getting worse and see where we are. At the time of the referendum, certainly when people were driving out in the countryside, but there's the signs of uh, vote for Brexit, vote to leave, vote to remain. There was a, a, con- a conception that the, the farmers were generally pro-Brexit. Is that a misconception or is that fairly accurate? I, I think uh, uh, in reality, farming and the rural community was split like lots like the rest of, of the other country. Uh, yeah. communities. I think, yeah, I know of some, some colleagues and some friends who, who campaigned on both sides of the referendum. But for me and, and for the union, that's actually now irrelevant, actually. Yeah. What it is now... It's done now. It's, exactly. It yeah. is, or, or it's not done, actually. Well, Let's be very clear. But, but, but but, but we we're, leaving, we're leaving, you know, yeah. and, and the reality is now is how do we get the best deal uh, for both British farmers, British consumers uh, and the public who enjoy uh, what we produce, whether that be a food, a landscape or a, a way of production? Tristan on Twitter has sent a question in and says, what are the benefits of Brexit for the farming industry? Uh, so uh, there, there are a, a number of benefits, actually. I think, actually, if we talk about trade, mm-hmm. there are certain parts of the world world where I think we can have some real positive trade deals. Such as? Uh, well, our dairy products, for example, are one that we can really lead the world on. Uh, we can really add value to. When you look at uh, our sustainable meat production in this country, people mm. are crying out for this around the world. Around the world. Um, so I think actually there are some opportunities on trade. There's also opportunities in terms of uh, the regulatory environment. So actually... We are now at least in a position where the politicians in this country will make the decisions and be responsible for. They can't blame someone else. They can't park the buck. Is that uh, something that used to happen, um, perhaps? Look, I think in every aspect of society, uh, probably for all of us, it was convenient to blame Brussels for things. Mm-hmm. I think going forward, all of a sudden, people are going to have to be more accountable. But could, um, you, put, but could you put your finger on, without, without wishing to get too technical, but something that we could easily understand, was there something that... For you, you know, you're a farmer yourself. Was there something that came directly down from Brussels which you went, oh, why do we have to comply with this? This is just nonsense, bureaucratic nonsense that's costing me money and making my life a misery. Yeah, I think certainly uh, some of, you know, you you must measure certain areas of ground to the nearest centimetre when actually, you know, 20 or 30 centimetres would not have made a difference. But it's not, that was not the challenge. The challenge for me was the fact that actually we too often would, um, it was how we interpreted things. So it's how we applied regulation on the ground. And going forward... Our our politicians will be responsible for that. But the biggest opportunity I see, and you asked the question earlier about where the opportunities Mm -hmm. the the guy on Twitter asked, Um, actually the biggest opportunity for me here is we uh, have as a country a real opportunity. We've got COP26 coming up later this year. Glasgow, We can take a leading charge in climate change. Mm -hmm. Agriculture for too long has been blamed uh, for being the cause of climate change. I get fed up with defending 
this when actually we believe we're the solution to it. Mm -hmm. And if our government get behind our industry uh, as part of the solution to climate change, I think we can do that way faster with some real leadership in this country, uh, way beyond anything we've been able to do okay, before. Uh, yeah, we can all get terribly excited about you know, uh, a US trade deal or a, a South American trade deal or an Australian trade deal. At the end of the day, our single biggest customer uh, is continental Europe. And, and at the end of the day as well, in trade deals, you can't change geography. The yeah. continent is still our closest uh, so customer. So not being part of the customs union in the single market, how big an impact is that for well, it'll, your it'll union end, members? It will end up depending on what deal we do. So if we end up with a free trade deal with Europe uh, mm -hmm. that is relatively free and frictionless, which is what we hope for, um, then actually I think they will still be our largest customer and it will work well. Okay. If we end up with you know WTO terms... Or an Australian uh, deal, or, which, which is what's look, been an renamed. It's a no-deal, yeah. An Australian deal is WTO terms. Yeah. Let, let, let's not dress and it let's, up And also let's, let's just add a little caveat there. Australia has for years been trying to get a free trade deal with the EU. It's not as if Australia is sitting there going, no, oh, we love it, we just trade on WTO. C they want a deal. C correct. Um, so if we end up with a WTO deal, let's just take one uh, one commodity. Uh, if we, we export a lot of uh, sheep meat into continental Europe at the moment. That is tariff-free. Uh, so if we have a new deal uh, on WTO terms, not only will we have the additional cost of paper work, administration, checks, will have a 48% tariff applied to that sheet meat. That will be disastrous for that industry. And and it will take decades to find other deals elsewhere to okay, make so that up, if you can find them at all. Because that was going to be my point. A lot of people, and a lot of the narrative is, well, we don't need the EU. We can trade that same sheet meat uh, to uh, countries in Africa, South America, to the US. We, You know, the, the big mantra has been we've got the rest of the world to trade with. Yeah, and we have, but we haven't got trade deals with them. You know, this is where and the world costs? is different. And, and look, there is the cost, um, but ultimately... So it is. You... A, but, but the other big bit in this, the really big bit in this is, we have established customers. Mm. We have customers in Europe who want our product, who've been taking our product for 30, 40 years, who have big relationships. And, and whilst they are desperate to keep hold of that product, you put a 48% tariff on it well, and all of a sudden else. all of a sudden it is very very uncompetitive and you it takes time to build those relationships yes there will be opportunities in china yes there will be opportunities uh, how do you in, get fresh lamb Europe. to china well you you, you, you I mean. look you can get anything anywhere at a price point um, so and it we becomes are already, more expensive so, so potentially becomes more expensive but but more importantly it takes years to build mm. up that client base and let's not pretend we're the only ones looking for that there are other producers around the world who will be looking to go into to those countries. And also the and further you go, I mean, you mentioned it earlier because you made a big point of, of, about the environmental impact and you want farming to be at the forefront of leading the sort of the, 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 the heading towards zero emissions. But if you're doing trade deals and saying, well, I'm going to make up with what I've lost from the EU by sending my land to South Africa or sending it to India or sending... 
and if you want to do it fresh, now you're flying it there, so you've kind of undone all the good work by using Now, no, I, th- I think we, we need to get into a much more complicated discussion about the carbon footprint of transport versus the embedded carbon in the product, etc., etc. I don't think transport's the big issue. But what is the, uh, the big issue there is the fact that, you know, we would have to have the deals. We don't have them today. We haven't negotiated trade deals for a very long time. Um, and the, so the first priority has got to be that trade deal with Europe, which is our single biggest customer, and it needs to get as cr- close to free and frictionless as we can possibly get. And then we can start getting very excited about other opportunities around the world. We have a wider problem with journalism and corruption, frankly, and it's a little bit disingenuous of journalists to, you know, talk with outrage about this particular instance when everybody knows that political journalism in particular is based on this idea that you need, in order to get access, you need to curry favour with certain individuals and that if you write things which are critical, that might risk you being locked out. And yes, that's on... So on the right, journalists are under pressure in terms of how much you critique the government, but also on the left, that also works with the Labour Party. How far are left-wing journalists willing to go in order to criticise the Labour Party if it means that they don't get the inside track? And I think that is a problem in political journalism. And so if we're going to have a conversation about who gets access and who doesn't based on, you know, um, what coverage a government or a political party is given, let's have a broader conversation. Naomi... I mean, is it so much as sort of a give and take? You write nice stuff about us, you can come to our briefings, you're mean about us. And let's be clear what mean means. Mean might mean, and especially we've had three years of Brexit talk. Mean, I've been accused of talking this country down because I just asked some questions which I didn't understand. And I've been told, well, you don't believe in Brexit. So the same can apply to a journalist who, 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 I mean, we were talking earlier, Peter Mm. Foster, working for your Mm, uh, newspaper, soon to be with the Financial Times, wrote some, even though he was working for The Telegraph, which is... In, let's you know. Let's face it. In, very supportive of Boris Johnson uh, and the Boris Johnson government, but he was very, very critical. Naomi, is this is this acceptable to have uh, briefings given to only journalists who write good stuff about you? I think on, on the one hand, it can be seen as quite sinister. Um, uh, you maybe at, at one end of it, and then on the other, just sort of downright worrying and concerning. Um, Sherelle mentioned the Today programme. They they have 7 million listeners. At any one time on news channels, you, you've got the sort of tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands on a, on a good show. So to not be using that as a public broadcaster for public good is a bit concerning. You would hope that a, a sensible government, particularly when we've had various crises recently, coronavirus, Iran, that, that they would be using that as a channel to give people information that they need, you know, a public service announcement. So I think to sort of cut off that is concerning. Um, And I think there's also this sort of, I mean, from my perspective, what are they afraid of? I mean, are they they so worried about this position um, and and the future trade agreement discussions and, and negotiations that are going on? both with the European Union and then forging other ones, that they they don't... Are, are they fearful? Are they nervous? And I, I sort of saw that around the 31st of January celebrations, that most 
um, government figures or all, in fact, you know, really sort of backed off doing anything too hubristic. Um, they didn't want to be sort of seen to be cheering too hard with the sort of very extreme... Um, uh, you know, sort of uh, Farage East people. Um, and I wondered if that was because they're a bit nervous about what is to come. I would hope that our government was confident enough to be able to take scrutiny from all sides to mm -hmm. take on its its critics and rebut them if it's got good, strong arguments for it. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think everyone is a bit concerned. Uh, others are much more concerned. But it certainly doesn't, you know, the, the direction of travel doesn't appear to be a healthy one for democracy. But I totally agree with Sherelle that, you know, the blame doesn't doesn't lie solely with politicians and, and the lobby have, on the left and right, failed to scrutinise the other lot sufficiently. Um, and certainly during the election campaign that happened uh, just before um, the 12th of December, I, the, you know, The Guardian was really, you know, pumping out a lot of stuff straight out of uh, Labour press office as well. So yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, it happens on both sides. Yeah, when when newspapers become an extension of you know, the party newsletter, that's What's the when point? we start, people need to start asking, what is the role of the political journalist? Thanks for downloading the podcast. Subscribe and give us a like if you enjoyed us. And reminder that we are on air always Sunday mornings 10 to 1.